Well, it is a great joy to be with you today, and, uh, and you know, we flew into Jupiter first, those of you who know the TES uh, uh, campuses, and down into Jupiter, Florida, and Jupiter is like another planet, if you've ever been there, uh, and so I love the people there, and Jerry and the boys, it's just a fantastic time to be with them always there, but when we came to, flew into Lynchburg, I felt like I was coming home, because though I didn't grow up in the South, I grew up in South Dakota, and, you know, Lynchburg in winter feels very much like South Dakota in, well, summer, actually, but, yeah, yeah, but, but in, you know, maybe early fall or, or early spring, and uh, just the, the trees and the houses and the streets, and, and then we drove by the volunteer fire department, and I said to Brian, I feel so at home here. This is just the way life should be. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you, to be with Brian and Tracy, of course, and stay in their home. And, and just experience you and the great staff that you have here. Uh, you have some fine young men here to serve you and to, that you can shepherd and train. You get to make pastors in your own image as you teach and, uh, and shepherd the, the, the students at TES. And so uh, I'm just very encouraged to be here and see what you're doing and see what Brian and all the guys are doing. And so thank you for being a fine church and for loving Jesus Christ and for giving us the opportunity to be here this weekend. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 33. Psalm 33 will be our text. Let's read our text. You can follow along as I read. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness, and he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, whose God is Yahweh the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of all of them, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their souls from death, to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. The conference this weekend has been about biblical counseling, and biblical counselors will often say to you, and I've said this many times myself, that all the emotional and spiritual problems that we have in life in some way, at some point, in some time, tie back to a wrong understanding of God, a wrong or deficient view of God, a wrong application of our understanding of God. And today, as we study Psalm 33, we're going to discover just how true that is, and we're going to study it in contrast because this psalmist has a right view of God, and we will see how well it goes for him, even in the midst of his crisis. Let me begin this way. Geography is a very important subject in the study of Scripture. Very important, and although it's probably the class that you slept through most often in high school, geography is actually very important when you open your Bible and begin to read. And although it might not be immediately evident when you read Psalm 33, the truth is geography is very important to this psalm. Let me explain. 
If you look at a map, you will quickly see that Israel is the toll gate between Africa and Asia. It sits at the center of what the students of ancient geography would call the Fertile Crescent. I'm sure you've heard that term. The Fertile Crescent begins in the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys and valleys in Mesopotamia. It swung down through Syria and Lebanon and passed through Israel and then into the Nile River Valley of Egypt. And if you remember your history classes in school, you remember that fertile area was the hotbed of ancient civilization. Israel was right in the middle of that. She was the bridge between the great civilizations in Mesopotamia on one hand and the pharaohs of Egypt on the other. And what that meant practically is that Israel was a freeway for the armies of the world. To combine human depravity with Israel's geographic location, you have a battlefield. If it wasn't the pharaohs or the Assyrians trampling across the Jews' homeland, it was the desert peoples to the east or the south invading the inviting hills and valleys of Palestine. And the truth is, if you have your eyes open when you read the Old Testament, you can't turn a page of the Old Testament without seeing it. It started in Genesis 14 when Lot was captured by the Mesopotamian king Chedolomar and Abraham had to go and rescue him. It pervades the book of Judges. David's reign, of course, is full of it, and the accounts of kings and chronicles ring with the clashing of swords and shields. War was a ceaseless reality in the life of the Jews, and, well, not much has changed, has it? Not surprisingly, surprisingly, then, the Psalms, which are the inspired heart cry of the Jewish people, the Psalms often speak of warfare. And you say, well, why is that? Well, the answer is simple, because the psalmists are real men, and they're writing about their real-life situations. They're not professional songwriters sitting in a room somewhere trying to spin out phrases that rhyme and sound good. These are men writing about God and life. They're writing about God and their lives. And when the psalmist gets down to what's happening in his life, in verses 16 and 17, the language that he uses is the language of war horses, shields, and armies. Verse 16. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. I believe that gives us a glimpse into the life and the fears of this psalmist, because the truth is those two verses don't fit in this psalm any other way unless that's his life situation. Why does he even mention that? Why does he bring that in? And the answer is very simply is that's what's going on in his life. War was as commonplace in Israel as rocks and sand, as Brian, who's been there many times, will tell you there's a lot of rocks and a lot of sands. If I had lived in ancient Palestine and wanted to make money, I think I probably would have run a drugstore that specialized in sleeping pills and tranquilizers. Because every morning you had to get up and get out of bed and go and check which army was camped in your front yard that morning. Ancient Israel was a nerve-wracking place to live. And living in the midst of such a rapidly changing scenario and circumstances, especially when you add war to that, that could be a very fearful thing. And, of course, we have the same kind of similar problems, at least today. I mean, you know, we're, we're all talking about Ukraine and what's going on there, and though that's on the other side of the planet, it, it, it makes us a little bit nervous And while we might not have war here right where we live, praise God for that, while we don't have that, we also face rapidly changing circumstances and situations and and chaos and crisis of different forms and fashions, but we face them. And the reality is, is that just as fear might control you and dominate you when you face a war situation, fear might control and dominate you this morning in whatever situations you are facing. Fear, in fact, controls many people's lives. It is pervasive, and at times it can be very disabling. Some people fear losing their jobs. Others fear crime, certainly in the country where I live. We, we used to fear nuclear holocaust, and then we thought it went away, and now we're starting to wonder again if, well, maybe somebody is rattling their rockets again. We tremble at the thought of unrestrained ap- epidemics, a worldwide economic collapse, 
Some people fear more mundane things like going out of the house. Others shiver at the thought of failure. Most often, people just fear fear. They, they, they fear the sensations of fear. They live in a constant state of nameless dread, not even sure what they're afraid of, but sure there must be something to be afraid of. Now, not all fear is bad, of course. Fear is what keeps you from rollerblading on the freeway or taking a bungee jumping as a hobby, right? Some forms of fear are good. But we all know that fear can be a destructive and disabling and controlling and dominating emotion. The question I want to ask this morning as we come to this psalm, thinking about the psalmist and the fears that undoubtedly he was facing, I want to ask the question, how do we as believers in Jesus Christ, how do we as those who are God's children, how do we overcome those disabling fears I just talked about? It might not be a fear of war. It could be, but it could be a hundred other fears or maybe a thousand or ten thousand. How do we overcome fear? Someone once said this profound line, the fear of God is the fear that removes all others. I like that. And that is exactly the approach that the psalmist takes here in Psalm 33. It is the fear of the Lord that will drive out all his other fears. Those fears were large. Those fears were real. Those fears were, 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 were terrible and awful. War is a horrible thing. But the fear of the Lord was the fear that drove out all his other fears. It's what led him to be able to live in his fearful circumstances a life of peace and stability. Now, to help us understand the psalm, I've broken it down into four parts. Let me give you the outline. If you're taking notes, you can write down verses 1 through 5. That'll be a, care, uh, sorry, a call to exaltation. It's kind of a call to worship. Call to exaltation, verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 15 will be a careful explanation. He's going to explain three attributes of God to us. A careful explanation, verses 6 to 15. Verses 16 through 21, a confident application of those attributes of God to his situation. And then verse 22 will be a closing supplication, a closing prayer. All four parts of the psalm contribute to the theme, the fear of the Lord is the fear that drives out all other fears. And as I noted, this psalm was written in a land where war was actually the norm, not the exception. The people of Israel knew war, and they knew all the uncertainty and all the chaos and the suffering that goes with it. And this man found confidence to face it, and he found that his confidence did not come from human institutions. They did not come from human powers. They did not come from human abilities. They did not come from military might, from better weapons or bigger guns. For him, the strength to face what he didn't have, the strength to face, didn't come from the human realm at all. It came from knowing God. It came from knowing God and from evaluating, evaluating life against that knowledge. Now, our psalmist, as is very often the case in the psalms, begins with a call to worship, a call to exaltation, as I called it in verses 1 through 5. And what he does is he, he lines up a series of five imperatives all exhorting the listener to participate in a joyful exaltation of Yahweh, the true and living God. He says in verse 1, Sing for joy in the Lord, you his righteous ones. Praise is becoming or beautiful to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with the shout, a shout of joy. Now, if the context was war, as I've suggested to you from verses 16 and 17, if the context is war, this call to a joyful enthusiasm, singing and shouting to the Lord and playing a musical instrument seems a little bit odd. Joy, as you remember, however, is not situational. Joy is not based on your changing circumstances as happiness is. Joy is based on knowing the unchanging God, no matter how rapidly your circumstances are changing. Verse 1 says, sing for joy in, or I might translate it, because of the Lord. God is what motivates joyful exuberance and confidence. Life doesn't motivate that, but God does. And therefore, the psalmist worshiped and called others to worship God as well. In fact, he said praise, which is just boasting about God, really. 
Praise is the only right response for an upright, believing heart. Sing for joy because of Yahweh, O you his righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Literally, as I said, it is beautiful to the upright. It is beautiful to us. It is beautiful to do it. This is the attitude exhibited by Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. When they sang the praises of God, when they boasted about God vocally, musically, in the prison of Philippi. You say, well, when is it appropriate? When is it beautiful to to sing to God and to praise God? How about at midnight, in jail, when your body aches from being beaten with sticks? Singing praise to God is the right response in any desperate situation. Because praise targets your heart on the one who can indeed help God. Now, before this man gets to his main reasons for his joyful confidence, he's going to list some introductory reasons. and He's kind of just warming up his voice, running through some scales before he gets to the main song in verses 6 through 22. And so verses 4 and 5, he just throws out some, some, some important but just bullet point points about God. He says, for the word of the Lord, here's why I'm praising God, the the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. He says, I'm eager to praise the Lord, first because of his word. His word, God's word is upright, it is straight. God's commands have no moral twists or turns or kinks in them. God's word is like a ruler, not a corkscrew. It tells you how to please God and how to do that without tricks or moral sleights of hand or gimmicks or anything like that. In short, God's word reflects the perfect character of its divine author. The psalmist praised the Lord for it. Besides the straightness of God's word, the psalmist sang to God because everything God does is done in faithfulness. Verse 4, the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. With, a God, with God, there is always certainty and stability. You know, life is unpredictable, but for believers in Jesus Christ, God and his help is utterly predictable. And that's because God is faithful. That's because God loves righteousness and justice. And then the psalm ends, psalmist ends that warm-up mentioning God's loving kindness. In verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. The Hebrew word is chesed, my church's favorite word. I've introduced them to that word. And God's enduring, forgiving, faithful, covenant, unbreakable, loyal love. Right? The earth is full of it, and we experience it through Christ, don't we? Perhaps more than anything else, that unfailing love of God, that Romans 8 love, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, that motivates our praise of God. Now, this is hardly the song of a fearful or doubting heart, is it? Even in the introduction, you get the sense of the psalmist moving towards his confident conclusion. Praising God is an appropriate response to fear, whatever that fear is. Praise reminds us that God is big and that no situation rises above the sole of his shoe. Now, having finished his call to exaltation in verses 6 through 15, we find really the heart of the psalm, and that is the psalmist's careful explanation, his careful explanation of his confidence. There are going to be three explanations, and they are explanations of three of God's attributes. Three of God's attributes, and they're going to tell us how we can live without crippling fear. All three, of course, have to do with God. That is no surprise. In each explanation, he's going to focus on one of God's attributes. In this case, it's going to be God's omnipotence, God's sovereignty, and God's omniscience. Fear of war, famine, death, things all mentioned towards the end of this psalm. They are chased away when we look to God first and to our circumstances second. It is our fear of the Lord that drives out all other fears. Now, the first explanation of the psalmist as to why he could face life without fear is because he knew that God was the creator of the universe, and we're going to summarize that as God's power or God's omniscience. 
verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? He spoke. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Now let me ask you a question. What would you say is the most important verse in the Bible? What would you say is the most important verse in the Bible? And, and if this was a dialogue setting, we could have a pretty fun half hour, you know, debating what the most important verse in the Bible is. Some might say John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And someone else might say Ephesians 2.8, by grace you're saved through faith. Or someone else might say Mark 12.30, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And all those verses are profoundly significant. And in a sense, there would be no wrong answer to this question, but... But I would argue they are not the most important verse in the Bible. The most important verse in the Bible, the most foundational verse in the Bible in all the Scripture is the first one. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That is the most basic truth you believe. That is the most basic truth in the whole Bible. It is the presupposition of everything we believe. God is and God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the basic, unargued, unproven assumption of the Bible. God is self-existent. He is, and everything else that is, he began. And the psalmist says what that tells us of is God's power. That tells us about God's power, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. You see, we've lost our wonder over this in the technology of our modern world, in a world of science and analysis. We, we've lost our wonder at this simple statement. Oh, so yeah, God created for nothing. Apple's working on an app for that, you know. Um, I'm sure they'll come up with that in a couple years. We are so desensitized to the incredible that the miracle of creation has lost its impressiveness in our mind. In contrast, this psalmist, moved by the Holy Spirit, understood the measureless power of the Creator God. We are not talking mechanistic systems here working over billions and billions of years. We are talking about God speaking in a moment of time. In fact, even in the word order of the poetry here in the original, it emphasizes the awesomeness of God's creative power because normally in any Hebrew sentence, the author will place the verb first in the sentence. Here, however, he thrusts the prepositions to the front. He presses them forward in the sentence, and he's doing that to, to, to catch your attention, to celebrate the ease with which God made everything from nothing. By a word, that's all it took. By a word, by a mere breath, an exhalation of breath, by God, now God's a spirit being, he doesn't have lips and tongue, you understand, but by a mere breath, by a mere spoken word, God created everything that is. Stop and think about that for a moment. It was that simple. Let there be light. And there was light. Have you ever tried that? You know, rain, rain, go away, come again another day. Did it work? Uh, probably not. God spoke and it became. It was not and then it was. Into utter nothingness, nothing, nothing, as Francis Schaeffer used to call it, into utter nothingness, God spoke and billions of stars appeared in an instant. Each molecule, each atom, each electron formed and functioning exactly as he individually designed them to do. About 75% of the Earth's surface is covered with water. Verse 7 says God piles it up exactly where he wants it. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in a storehouse. 
What you need to understand that when, when God made the universe, he didn't get a mail order kit from Amazon, universe, some assembly required, batteries not included. That's not how it worked. There was nothing there. God is not a carpenter with boards and nails and screws making a bookshelf. There's nothing. There's nothing there. And then in an instant of time, the living God spoke, and everything he had imagined and designed in his infinite mind was instantly there working perfectly. This man, in the midst of all his fearful situations, This man could live life with joyful confidence because he knew the power of the Creator God. He'd read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He'd read it, and he'd thought about it a little deeper than you and I sometimes do. God is not a skinny kid with nerdy glasses and a do-it-yourself chemistry kit. God spoke, and it came into being, all of it, Where there was no thing, a universe appeared. And when you start to think about the Creator God, your puny fears, your puny fears start to shrink to their proper proportions, don't they? They're real, but they shrink. And like the psalmist, you can calmly and confidently and patiently wait on God. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. This is the fear that's driving out my fears. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? He spoke. That's all it took. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. This man's fear of God is busy driving out all his other fears. And there's a reason Solomon said this is where knowledge and wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. This is kindergarten. Because this is where it starts. This is where, this is where knowledge starts. This is where wisdom starts. This is where spirituality starts. This is where emotional strength starts. It all starts right here at the kindergarten called the fear of the Lord. It's the kindergarten you never advance from. You never leave. You stay right there because it is kindergarten and PhD at the same time, isn't it? The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning. It's the starting place. And here's the point. I don't know what fears you are facing this morning. They're probably just like the fears I would face and people in my church would face. But if in the beginning, this God, the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if God in the beginning spoke everything and it was firmly established, do you think he could speak right now into your situation? Do you think he could speak into your situation and determining situation in your life? I think he could. And so that is the psalmist's first careful explanation of his confidence amidst the chaos of his life scenario. God is creator, and when I think about God as creator and I meditate on that, I realize his power, and that power helps diminish my fears. It squashes my fears, and it removes my fears. Explanation number two. Explanation number two of our psalmist's joyful confidence in his fearful world was God's control or God's sovereignty. Verse 10. Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in the plans of his heart from generation to generation. God is sovereign. I like to find God's sovereignty. I mean, I've seen paragraph links, length definitions of God's sovereignty, and, and neither I nor you probably understand them. I just define it pretty simply. Sovereignty means God has the right to do whatever he wants, and of course his omnipotence means he can, in fact, implement it. And God can do whatever he wants, and he can make everyone else do what he wants too. He has both the muscle and the authority to do what he desires. Now, remember that he's good, and so it's great that God has the authority to do what he wants because he's a good God. Let me just turn you quickly to two verses that will highlight that for you, that definition of sovereignty. First, Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3 says this, 
our God is in the heavens. <laughs> so I'm saying, I don't know where your gods are. <laughs> They're like Elijah, you know, maybe he's, you know, in the loo, as we would say in South Africa. Right? I don't know where your God is, but our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. God can do whatever he wants, and since he's good, we're glad he can. And then Psalm 103 gives you the flip side of that. Not only can God do whatever he wants, but his authority rules over everyone else as well. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. God can do whatever he wants, and he can make everyone else do what he wants to. Now, let's take that for a moment, the fact that God is in control, and let's walk that back to our situation with our psalmist there in Israel. Imagine, if you will, for a moment that you are him, that you are he, I guess I should say, right? That you are he. I'm supposed to be a grammar guy. How in the world do I say that? Imagine, if you will, that you are a psalmist living in his little mud brick house there in Israel with his wife and his kids. He rises early, he works hard, and he, at the end of the day, watches the sun set over the Judean hills into the Mediterranean Sea each evening. Life is wonderful. Then imagine the armies of Egypt marching across your land, an invasion by the Philistines, a lightning raid by the Amorites, border clashes with the Midianites and with the Edomites, and a looming monster to the north, the Assyrian legions, poised for a blitzkrieg attack. Life in Israel was a military political nightmare. Nonetheless, the psalmist could speak to his nation and say this in verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. I mean, how can he say that? How can he say that with the armies of the Fertile Crescent continually breathing down Israel's neck? And the answer is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, God is in control. He knew that no matter who those nations were or what they planned or schemed against Israel, God was over them. Because his throne, it's in the heavens, and his sovereignty, his dominion rules over all. Those nations were subject to God's controlling will. They are subject to God's determinative judgments. In fact, although the nations continually manufactured plans and strategies and schemes against Israel, they all came to naught unless God was using those plans to discipline Israel. Verse 10, the Lord nullifies, turns to zero, turns to nothing. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. You get the sense that you wish I was in Ukraine this morning so I could preach this to my Ukrainian brothers and sisters in Christ. You're right, I wish I could, because this is the psalm that I hope they're all studying, reading, and preaching right now, today, on this Sunday. God nullifies the counsel of the nations he brings them to naught. God caused their plans to be broken, to be as if they had never existed. You see, it is possible to live a life not controlled by fear, but only if you're controlled by fear, the fear of the Lord. You can live fearlessly if you live controlled by the fear of the Lord. Although the plans of men are erased, notice what verse 11 says about God's plan, about God's counsel, the counsel of the Lord, well, it stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God's plans are firmly fixed from all eternity. And the psalmist could sing praises to the living God in the face of his troubled times because he knew that God was in control. So the secret of overcoming fear and doubt is to recall first God's power and then God's sovereignty. When we were preparing to go to South Africa in the middle 1990s, and they were just coming out of the apartheid era and just having their first elections and all that sort of thing, people asked us, um, you know, aren't you scared to go there? I mean, what if the political scene turns bad? What if there's a civil war? And I, we were probably just naive, but hopefully there was a little more to it than that. You know, Ruthie and I just never really worried about that. To, to be honest, we never lost one minute's sleep over that. As far as we were concerned, that was God's business. Uh, that, that's in God's category. He nullifies the council of the nations. We'll just go preach Christ. 
Those political leaders who think that the destiny of the world and our lives is in their hands, they need to think again. As we who worry or lose sleep over our nation's politics, we need to remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40. You, you, you remember the verse as well. Isaiah says in verse 23 of chapter 40, He it is, God, it is He who reduces the rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely is their stock taken root in the earth, and He merely blows on them. He merely blows on them, and they wither. Storm wind, the hurricane of his breath, of God's breath, blows them away like stubble. To whom then, says Isaiah, classic question, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. God's sovereign control over the affairs of our daily life, over the affairs of the nations, it brings so much peace of mind, doesn't it? It brings so much stability and confidence and peace of mind. Worrying is just useless in a world run by God. In a world run by you, worrying is job one. In a world run by God, worrying is just a whole lot of wasted effort, isn't it? And so how do you face life's uncertainties without fear? Well, you drop your anchor in the harbor of God's power and God's control. Now, that leads us to a third explanation, a third attribute of God in Psalm 33, the third explanation of this man's peaceful stability, verse 13. The Lord looks from heaven, from heaven, and he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. And one of the key principles in biblical hermeneutics is look for repeated words and phrases. And I'm not going to give, you know, a prize to the one who figured out what the key word there is because it's so easy, right? The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. On his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of all of them, he who understands all their works. Any questions, class? There's a reason we use the, the, the prefix omni when we talk about God, right? And here, of course, it is going to be his omni-knowledge, his omniscience. These verses emphasize that God looks, God sees, God understands. And he looks and sees and understands everything. And the fancy way of saying that is God's omniscience. And God knows everything. I love to think about this attribute of God. It's, it's, just, it's, it's wonderful to think and to, to preach about it. Do you realize that God has never had to ask a question? God knows everything. If he asks a question, it's for your benefit, not his. When Jesus said, all the hairs on your head are numbered, you don't think God actually wasted his time counting them, do you? He didn't have to count, he just knows. Job 37.16 says, God is perfect in knowledge. Isaiah 40 asks the question, expecting no answer, who taught God knowledge? I like to tell people to shock them a little bit. Do you realize God is uneducated? <laughs> He's never had to learn anything. Right? There's some words that just don't apply to God. Nobody has said it better than A.W. Tozer in that classic quote from The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He is never amazed. God never wonders about anything. That is just a brilliant quote, a brilliant statement. God knows everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that ever will happen. In other words, God can, God's control of your circumstances is never based on insufficient or inaccurate data. 
Psalm 139 says. He, he, he knows my ways. He knows what I think, what I say before I say it. God's control of your life is never based on insufficient knowledge. God sees all men. He knows exactly how they think. He understands all their works. He knows what they do overtly. He knows their covert plans, their schemes, their hidden motives. God knows it all. In contrast, of course, for you and me, fear often arises from insufficient knowledge. The mother who's worried because her child is late arriving home from school if she just knew he was okay. Our limited knowledge frequently breeds fear. In such cases, it's the fear of the omniscience of God, the fear of the omniscient God that drives out all those other fears. Notice that four times in these verses, the psalmist emphasized the inclusiveness of God's knowledge. The Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all, he understands all their works. To evaluate life from God's perspective, if we were to be there for a moment, standing next to his throne in heaven, seeing what God sees, if we see life from God's perspective, we need to remember that he knows everything. In a very real way, God's absolute knowledge, then, and our restricted knowledge, his knowledge is absolute, ours is restricted, minuscule in many ways, that is the testing ground of faith. The fact that God knows everything and I don't is the testing ground of faith. Let me explain. You know that God knows everything. You don't go to a good Bible teaching church. You know that attribute of God. You know that God knows everything. You, however, only know some things. And fear usually begins where your knowledge stops. It would, of course, maybe be better to say it another way. You only know some things, and faith begins where your knowledge stops. Indeed, I would say faith begins even farther back in the process than that, doesn't it? Are you willing to trust God? Trust God's complete knowledge and live by faith rather than by fear? Are you willing to trust that God knows the right thing to do? that he is good and does good, as Lance said earlier this morning. Will you trust God for that span from where your knowledge ends to where knowledge is complete? That's faith. It's the kind of faith illustrated by riding in the back seat of the car on a long trip when you were little. I alluded to this yesterday. You knew the streets around your house well enough, but once the car drove beyond the limited range of your knowledge, you had to trust your parents' superior knowledge to get you to your destination. And indeed, you did trust them. When you were two years old, did you lean over the back seat and shout at Dad, Stop the car! I want to see the map. I want to see where we're going, Dad. No, of course not. In fact, you probably fell asleep and your parents woke you up when you got to Grandma's house, right? That's the calm confidence of trusting superior knowledge. That's the calm confidence we have when we trust God's complete knowledge. Now, having carefully explained his joyful confidence in God's power, God's control, and God's knowledge, in verse 16, the psalmist starts to apply what he knows about God. Uh, knowledge that you know but do not apply does not help you. Theological knowledge is useless if it's not driven down into life. First, the psalmist applies what he knows about God's power, verses 16 and 17. And the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. That would be the battle tank of their world. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. You can see he's talking about power, isn't he? The psalmist is facing one of those overwhelming military situations that are so typical of Israel's history. And he kept calm by remembering that human resources just were not the issue. 
When he looked at God, he understood that it wasn't his army or his horses that allowed him to face life without fear. It wasn't his bank account, it wasn't his degree, it wasn't his family name, it wasn't his ability to manipulate or dominate people. Power belongs to God's. What God establishes stands firm. As Proverbs 21, 31 says, the horse, well, yeah, it's prepared for the day of battle. There's legitimate human responsibility, but the victory, that belongs to God. That belongs to the Lord. So he first supplies the truth of God's power. Next, he applies his renewed understanding of God's knowledge, verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord, we're back to that omniscience thing, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver, God's watching them, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. God knows the way of the righteous. His eye is on them. His knowledge is complete. The psalmist did not fear death, the unknown. He did not fear famine, circumstances beyond his control, because he was confident that God had his eye on him. And he knew that God is by nature a giver of grace, a giving of that loving kindness, that chesed, that unfailing, loyal, covenant, never-changing, forgiving love. His fears were banished because he knew that God knew all about the things that he dreaded, war, famine, death. Now, his hope is not based on blindly ignoring the reality of his troubles, nor is it some kind of a certain, I, I hope God knows. His hope is a confident assurance because it rests on the concrete and rebar foundation of the God who knows everything. And finally, notice in verses 20 and 21 how the man applies the fact that God is totally in control. Verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. We wait for Yahweh. He is our help and He is our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. This God's in control and we can trust Him. Knowledge of God's control produced a calm, expectant, faithful waiting at the feet of God. According to verse 21, that waiting was indeed tinged by joy. For our heart rejoices in Him. Our situation is fearful and our hearts are joyful. How can that be? Our hearts rejoice in Him because we trust in His holy, utterly unique name. Now, fittingly, the psalm closes with a closing supplication. The last point in our outline, closing supplication, verse 22. It's an astonishing prayer. It is an astonishing, frankly, it's a terrifying prayer. The man says this, Let your loving kindness, your unfailing love, O Lord, let that be upon us, nothing fearful there, according as we have hoped in you. Up to the measure of the standard, is how you might translate it fully. Up to the measure of the standard that we have trusted in you, Lord, in that way put your love upon us. That is a very brave prayer. He could pray that prayer because he's been focusing on God now in the midst of his crisis and his chaos. And that has convinced him to put all of his trust in the all-powerful, all-knowing, totally in control God. In one memorable proverbial statement, the fear of the Lord is the fear that drives out all other fears. It is a terrifying thing to pray the prayer, God, only bless me as much as I have trusted in you. I'm not sure I've ever had the courage to pray that prayer. You know, uh, My prayer would be more, God, here's how much I've trusted you, and I'm asking that you do a little more, <laughs> that you would do a lot more. Uh, I do want to trust you, but I pray that you would bless me more than I have trusted you. I believe, help my unbelief. Fear of the Lord is the fear that drives out all the fears. You, you might remember how Peter learned that lesson, that fixing your attention on God, God the Son, Lord Jesus Christ in the case, this case, how that was the way to overcome fears. 
In the midst of the great storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water, and Peter, at Christ's command, gets out of the boat to join the Lord on the waves. And you remember what happened when Peter took his eyes off of Christ, he sank in his fears. The message of Psalm 33 for you and me is, in essence, that message. When we keep our eyes on God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we keep our eyes on God, we can live a life of joyful confidence regardless of our circumstances. When there is upheaval and uncertainty in your world, you can mute the voice of fear by filling your mental ear, not with the anxiety and the babblings of worry, but with the unceasing praise of the all-knowing, all-powerful, totally-in-control God. And so when you face fear, be it today or this week or any time in your life, I'm going to urge you to come back right here and read Psalm 33 again. And read the attributes of God listed here and just relish the moments to realize that indeed it is the fear of the Lord that drives out all our other fears. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a joy to preach this sermon, and at the same time as I preach it, I know there are people here who have very real and and serious crises and conflicts in their life. I alluded to the situation in Ukraine earlier, and and I have friends there who are serving you in the midst of the difficulties of a war situation, and so this psalm would be just the place for them to run today. And whether we're in that scenario or another, Lord, we, we want to come back to a kindergarten that is kindergarten and Ph.D. at the same time, to come back to the reality that we start with you in the beginning, God, and Lord, we drift from that, and I pray that this morning would have called us back to that, and whatever fears we face, whatever the trials are, Lord, I pray that in the midst of them, we would let our fear of you, our loving, devoted, fear him and cling to him at the same time, that we would let our fear of the Lord drive out all of our other fears. We do pray that you would trust us to the degree that we fear and trust, sorry, that you would uphold us and give us grace to the degree that we, that we fear you, to the degree that we trust you, and indeed we pray that you would give even more because we know we do not trust you enough. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God that we have just discovered and reminded ourselves this morning. And we pray that the fear of you would drive out our other fears in Jesus' name.